Welcome to the 245th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion with writer Liz Lenz, author of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> let me start that again. Today is a discussion with writer Liz Lenz, author of the new book, Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live at its new time weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 24th, 2021, there are 2,736,452 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has climbed to 543,849. In the state of Iowa, there have been 5,683 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, a year after its first COVID patient, Jackson Health honors staff remembers lives lost. This is by Michelle Moshanti and appeared March 19th, 2021 in the Miami Herald. March 19th marked a year since Jackson Health System saw its first COVID-19 patient admitted into one of its hospitals. A year since Jackson's staff, like the rest of the community, began quote, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, unquote, said Reverend Jacqueline D. Kelly shortly after calling for a moment of silence to remember the personal heroes that were lost in the pandemic. Kelly, director of Jackson's Spiritual Care Services, spoke at a ceremony to commemorate the day Jackson Health entered the fight against COVID-19, surrounded by a memorial of blue and white flags planted in Alamo Park at Jackson's Miami, Florida campus. The blue flags symbolize Jackson's 5,360 COVID-19 survivors. The white flags symbolize the 977 lives lost at Miami-Dade County's public hospital since last March. Three of those who died were Jackson employees. At the time, we knew so little about the virus, how it spread, or who was most at risk. We also had no idea how long it would last or the impact it would have on our reality said Jackson Health President and CEO Carlos Magoya. COVID struck Florida hard and Miami-Dade early on became the state's epicenter for the disease. The county has confirmed more than 432,000 cases and more than 5,700 deaths, making Miami-Dade the fourth highest county in the country in COVID cases after Los Angeles, Maricopa, and Cook counties, according to Johns Hopkins University. In my eyes, you're not just heroes, you're superheroes, Magoya said. As we reflect in the last year, the trauma we've endured and the hardships we have faced, never forget that the work you have done throughout this pandemic has made a lasting impression. I always say that Jackson is not the buildings, but rather the miracle workers inside of these buildings, he said. 
pandemic is not over yet, but the tide has changed. Doctors now know more about the disease and how to treat patients. Cases are declining, and there are three COVID-19 vaccines available in the United States, all which have shown to be effective in helping to prevent severe disease and health. More than 2.5 million Floridians have been fully vaccinated, and the Jackson Health Center has helped vaccinate more than 123,000 people in the past three months. Mr. Magoya said, we have not let this silent enemy defeat us. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today. Really excited to bring Liz Lenz to COVID calls. Let me introduce Liz. Liz Lenz's writing has appeared in the Huffington Post, the Washington Post, the Columbia Journalism Review, the New York Times, Pacific Standard, and others. Her book, Godland, was published in 2019 with Indiana University Press. And her second book, Belabored, was published last year, 2020, by Bold Type Books. Liz's essay, all the Angry Women was also included in the anthology, Not That Bad, edited by Roxane Gay. Liz received her MFA in creative writing from Lesley University, and she lives in Iowa. Liz Lentz, thanks for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there, what the vaccination situation is there. Well, I am calling in from Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where the pandemic situation has just like not been a situation. Um, basically, um, after this time last year, we had some we had a shutdown of sorts, which I think for the majority of America was pretty on par. And then um, sometime around uh, April. Our governor announced she was reopening the state, and uh, and that was after partnering with a um, a company with no with no healthcare experience for testing for COVID, and then just boom, we were back open. There were some restrictions, but um, you know. I think I've been uh, every once in a while been out and it just there's um, there's two. It, it really doesn't feel like we're all in this together. Right. People are being forced out into the world. Others are going out willingly. And then there's others who've been hiding in their house for over a year now. Um, and so um, and so we had a reinforcement of restrictions right after a huge surge uh, right around the election because of all the campaign, Republican campaign events. And now um, and probably all the vacations, too. We don't know because our contact tracing doesn't exist. And um, so we had a just for a few weeks, some more restrictions. And now it's just a free for all um, the vaccinations are um, going slowly. We used to be one of the worst states in the nation for vaccination rates. Now, um, now we're not so bad, but with rural counties and rural populations and, you know, of course, like many other places and many other states, um, the, the populations that are hit most and hardest for us are immigrant populations or people of color. Um, and those we have a hard time with you know, language barriers, cultural barriers. And, um, and so those slowly are being handled. But, um, but again, it's just, it's kind of like a, 
it's a real Mad Max kind of world out there for the uh, for the vaccine vaccine situation. I participated in the Novavax trial, or I'm still participating oh, wow. in it. Yeah, yeah. So I had kind of uh, seen that request go out, and I was like, well, I'm relatively young. I mean, 38. I mean, that's on the edge of big young-ish young younger-ish um uh, and uh and then so i was like and and healthy so why not you know do something and um and so hopefully that vaccine has had some really good results um especially with the variants and it's kind of a fun little vaccine because it's made out of the oh this i'm gonna sound like a real idiot to you a smart person but like you know because it's made out of the little bug cell with the little spikes on it so oh yeah i find that to be very fascinating how does that work if you're if you're in a trial like that i mean because there's also placebo so when will you know if you actually received it so they're gonna um so there's a couple of things um the they so when i started the trial back in um january i think is when i started it was the you know they were kind of like well we don't know you know what the situation with this is going to be but if you qualify for another vaccine will unblind you um and then when iowa announced that everybody who wants a vaccine should be able to get one um on april 5th they announced that they were gonna um was it double like double unblind us or so we'll all go back in Right. And then we'll all get a shot. And then whoever right. had the vaccine will get a placebo. And then whoever had a placebo will get a vaccine. So you, however it happens, so it doesn't mess up their data. Um, I'm in a Facebook group with some of the people who've chosen to unblind themselves by getting antibody tests um, for whatever that's worth. But um, but yeah, so it's it's been fascinating. And then I have to, I've never participated in a study before. Um, I've, I grew up a little bit uh, skeptical of of experimenting on my body and the government. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> that's a, a healthy skepticism and and vaccine hesitancy as a discussion in America is a lot more complicated than yes and no. Yes, and you know, I I recently wrote a book um, about uh, pregnant bodies and the history of medicine and misogyny in America. And I have to say, you know, the history as as a person who believes in science and who believes in learning, you know, I get the complications and the frustrations and the the intersection of race and gender and class that happens with medicine, especially in America, because we, you know, we like to pretend that medicine and science is this just, you know, like thing that sits off to the side, a little God on our shoulders that can never do any wrong, but it's really, it's really messed us all up and continues to mess us up. You know, America has one of the worst, um, you know, maternal death rates out of developed nations. So, so there's, and it's worse for black women. And, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of that at play there. Um, but it is encouraging to see people getting the vaccine and it feels like the majority are gonna, are gonna do it. I had a chance to talk with physician Javi Karkowski um, last week, and she's um, also got a new book out and she's uh, she basically is a physician who specializes in high-risk pregnancy and she talked about mm. dealing with that through the year and this issue around pregnant women as a subcategory for vaccination is so 
layered and so fraught because in general they've been excluded. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it comes time to give them advice, the advice uh, around these vaccines has been, they've had to rely basically on very local advice and on their individual physicians, which is great if you have, you know, an open channel with a physician that you can call. But if you don't, as you said earlier, lots of women don't, mm -hmm. what do you do? And I'd like to sort of bring that back to your book, um, Belabored. And I, I want to talk about that book. And I want to particularly sort of ask you how you see that work, because you finished the book before the pandemic, which is sort of amazing. And then the whole <laughs> world changes. And now you have to sort of talk about it a lot, um, but also maybe think about the pandemic through the book. I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's, the timing was so crazy. Um, I, I finished edits, last round of edits on the book, um, really just um, right before the Iowa caucuses. And at the time I was working mm. as a columnist and covering the caucuses. So things were kind of crazy. And then the Iowa caucuses happened and then the world shut down. And, and then I got, I got advanced reader copies of my book the day everything shut down. It was like one of the last packages I got for a while. And I was like, well, surely I'll be able to do a book tour in the fall. Sad yeah. trombone. But um, it's been interesting because of the way that the pandemic has particularly impacted mothers um, and and people who care for children. I want to be careful to use inclusive language. But um, the that it's and so my book you know talks about the way that society american society has refused to help mothers because they're because the bodies lie at the intersection of misogyny and power and religion and medicine and it's just this big toxic soup of of um you know power and control and we can't seem to get a grasp on it and you know like you said with the vaccine there's just not a lot of good answers for things because mm. um they're just we haven't done research on it because nobody wants to experiment on mothers and babies for good reason, because we used to experiment on mothers and babies right. and it was enslaved right. women and we did it without pain medicine or their permission, right. you know, so like that great. Uh, let's not do that. But the uh, there's, should be another way. <laughs> I feel like in between nothing and the complete brutalization of body, we could find a middle ground, but uh, in any case, so so all that, you know, like, and as the world has shut down, and then I'm a single mother, and then working full time, and then trying to do Zoom school is like everything that, you know, I'd been talking about with failures of policy just felt so compounded and so personalized. And it's a situation where, you know, people who care for children, especially primary caretakers, you're so busy, and you just you just have to care for that person that you don't have time to look out at the systemic oppression. But I think something that the pandemic really did was just strip away all pretense, you know, strip mm -hmm. away all those like messages of just try harder, love your kid better. Right. And right. then you realize you're like, no, this is a systemic problem that, you know, and, and I think it's interesting because I think it gave us, as a society, a real opportunity to say, no, like we need, we need schools actually stop defunding them. We need universal pre-K. We need paid, um, you know, parental leave. We need to pay parents equally. And, and, 
And I think we have this moment, but I'm worried that moment's slipping away from us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, I, it's also, you know, just, it seems to be just a complete failure of imagination that we, that we have this complete collapse. You know, women are screaming and we're like, nah, it's going to be fine. Let's just bail out an airline and right. you just suck it back up, lady. So, um you, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post in December, which laid out, I mean, really, it was, it was sort of like, here's what we can do to avoid the complete destruction of life for working moms, working caregivers in the United States. And that was just before the Biden administration was inaugurated. Um, I'd like to go through some of that with you because, you know, what you've just been talking about is all totally resonant at a general level. But then you you've also laid out some quite specific things that you think really need to happen. So I wonder if you could talk about those. I mean, paid family leave would be a good place to start, but there's a lot more. Oh, yeah. I, and the crazy thing about it, and it's so funny because I wrote this in my book, too, you know, where I tried to not be so like, everything's bad. I tried to write solutions, but going through and researching for my book, I realized the solutions existed. And those solutions have existed for centuries. We just won't do it. And I, I wrote something in my book that I keep coming back to. And it's like, well, you know, Arlie Russell Hostchild wrote it and she got like a Guggenheim. And if y'all won't listen to her, then who's going to listen to me? But I think I might be a little bit more annoying than her. So that might be helpful. <laughs> um, she's smarter. I'm more annoying. But yeah, so back to the Washington Post article, you know, it was just saying like, look, these policy solutions exist. It's a a better minimum wage because you want to talk about who cares for kids. It's minimum wage workers who care for kids, frontline workers. So, you know, we need to make sure that the the saving of one type of woman doesn't happen at the expense of the other woman, you know, so we need to be intersectional here. You know, it's creating better labor laws, allowing uh, caregivers to unionize, allowing you just, like in Iowa, we've stripped a lot of collective bargaining rights from teachers who are teachers, mostly women, mostly mothers, mostly caregivers. So, you know, building back up those labor rights, a fair minimum wage, um, you paid parental leave and, uh, and equal pay, like sign that ERA right now. Just do it. It's a paperwork issue at this point. You know, those things matter. And, um, and, and I also think it's interesting because we also are coming out of a time where we lost uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, whose, whose work was really about, you know, it was a subversive in a way because she fought for equal rights by saying, well, you know, like, if you oppress a woman, you're also oppressing a man. And and I've Mm -hmm. been thinking about this too, because in this, in this conversation about about mothers and caregivers, we're erasing fathers who are um, sometimes, not often, nobody get mad at me, shut in their offices doing all this work because their bosses aren't letting them. Oh, right. And that's another policy solution right. we need to give. Like, don't give PPP loans to companies that don't have like great work policies, workplace policies for both sets of parents, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a workplace might be more uh, forgiving of a mother, but might be more, you know, like, why is the dad doing the childcare because of cultural biases that still persist. So, you know, I, I do believe a lot of fathers in America want to be present for their kids, but just can't 
find a way to do it, especially with the demands of, you know, their jobs and their work. And if you don't have a corporate culture that that provides for that, then and how do you make that culture, corporate culture? It's easy. We're the, the government is great at making corporations do things. So, like, just give them a few more hoops to jump through. It's fine. Like, they're companies. They're they're gonna be fine. But you know, the, these structural things. So, so specific policy ideas. Yes. You know, which part of structural change? And as mm-hmm. you said. Um, if we can't see that over the past year in the United States, there will be no other lesson that can show it to people. It's been obvious at every which way yeah. the cracks in the structures that um, you know support oppression for working people, for working mothers, and for women. Generally, one other piece of that, some interesting data points throughout the year, which I wonder if you've probably seen, which that people also reported, they liked um, certain aspects of being with their family more. Not every mm. aspect, right? <laughs> yes. So, which is an interesting thing to build on, I think. But, you sort of bring those two together. I wonder what we get. Yeah, the flexibility, the ability to, um, you know, know your kids better, the time at home, yeah. the ability to say, you know, no, I'm not going to go into the office today, but I'll go in tomorrow, or you know, having more flexible hours where you know, like, well. I'll, does it matter if I answer email between, you know, 9 p.m. and 10 p.m., you know, and, t- and take an hour during the day so I can take my kid to their doctor appointment or something? So, um, you know, just having more flexibility. And it did seem like in the beginning of pandemic, companies and employers, I should just say employers, were very flexible. And now, you know, especially among my working mom parent uh, friends, it feels like the it's getting a little tight, you know, it's getting like, well, people are getting vaccinated. Why are you still wanting these things? And it's like, no, because it was great, you know? And, and I think there is, I also think something that gets to the culture and is kind of an adjacent issue, but it is what you're kind of talking about is that, you know, we have a culture of productivity and work, 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 but that's completely unsustainable. And people right. are hitting a wall. I have so many friends who are journalists who've just quit or who have been fired because the media industry is just, you know, it's always a mess, but especially now right. who've been fired and are like, okay, well, I'm just going to go sleep for a month. You know, the rigors of writing and reporting on COVID have been really, really, really hard. I mean, I experienced that. I was, when pandemic hit, I was you know, working full-time at a newspaper and then we lost sports, sports pages. So they, um, I was I was smart. I was like, oh, why don't we start a kid's page for you know kids who are home from school? And they're like, great, do it. So that was another full-time job, you know. on top of that and then taking care of my kids and then zoom school and then you know and then my my state um my city especially we had an inland hurricane commonly called a derecho so which destroyed our town and then i was reporting on that in addition i was doing some stringing and writing for the washington post all in addition and then when i was laid off in october it was just like i'm burnt 
out, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this culture that demands really high levels of productivity that aren't sustainable, especially if you are a human being (laughs) and if you have like children, you know, like, and, and that's the thing to, you know, you think about a lot, like, well, who can sustain that as a parent? Well, it's because you have a, a partner at home who's taking the hit in their career. So maybe let's not, maybe let's not use that as the bar for success. Um, We've had such a a culture of uh, kind of grit and lean in and find your resilience, which has placed so much, uh, just this culture you're talking about, the unsustainability of it, which puts so much of the onus back on the individual. Mm -hmm. Here's, you know, here's five de-stressing tips for you in the middle of a pandemic, or, you know, here's a healthier diet that you can adopt, which will allow you to work more hours in the day. And it's, it's a to- it's a sort of toxic health culture as well, and I just don't know how to. I mean, you're offering some suggestions about how we surface it, but I well, just really worry that this moment, again, as you said, will pass, and there will be a normalization. Well, I think you know, culture changes when policy changes. You know, we see that with suffrage, right? You know, it was a huge debate, passes, and now you know, we still debate women's ability to do thing but not vote you know uh and 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 so i i do i do believe on a structural level that if you did incentivize corporations and um and i know at least like early drafts of the build back better plan had some of these i know uh uh stipulations in them i'd like to see how it's changed since then but you know if you incentivize corporations to to change, to have better policies. If you let people unionize and organize, that would happen. Culture would change and culture has changed at you know times of crisis in America. I'm reading, uh, right now I'm researching a lot about how America used to have like really great childcare back during World War II, like kind of this universal childcare situation um, when all the women were working because all the men were fighting and, and that dried up when men came back and policy changed, but there's, but it's, I think sometimes we live in this historical bubble where we forget that things haven't always been this way and that you can push and organize for change. And it is a long haul. Um, So I do have hope there, but I mean, you're right. Like we live in a culture that it, whose response to systemic issues is to blame the individual. And that's why we're in a, that's why I live in a state where people are like, I'm not going to wear a mask because they think it's an individual choice. Right. When like, you know, Senator Warnock preached a few Sundays ago, you know, that we're all as close to each other as a cough, right. That we are actually not individuals. We are a system and we don't work. If, if, we are all relying on everybody just to lean in and get through it. Like that's just not, and I also think another, I'm sorry, I'm babbling a lot, but another interesting part of this is I think people are realizing, at least the American worker is realizing, I don't want to be miserable. I've had so many people I've talked to who are just like, you know what? Um, I was miserable before, but I thought that was like a fine level. And then the pandemic hit and then I had real, misery and I'm going to retire early. I I read some statistic that Mm -hmm. 25% of American uh, teachers are going to planning on dropping out 
at the end of the school year because they're miserable because we treated them like crap. Of course, they're going to quit. Like, uh, again, I, you know, I know a lot of people in media who are like, this sucks. Like, I'm out, you know, and I think people are realizing, like, maybe misery isn't the point of life. And I think that that's kind of been an American myth, especially one we've sold to women that, you know, pain is the point and you have to martyr yourself on the cross of motherhood. And I think there's a whole generation of women who are like, hell no. Like, I don't, the point of my life is not to to bleed on the cross of the American patriarchy. It's to, it's, it's to be a full and complete human. So I, I don't think this conversation is over, even if the policy solutions don't get passed. I know that um, it'll, it'll keep going because um, there's a lot of women who have big chips on their shoulder right now. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Liz Lenz today. We've been talking about her book, Belabored, and around the politics around um, the impossibility of doing so much work in the middle of a pandemic and possibility for structural change. Um, Let's talk a little bit about sort of politics at the more local level. And I want to, um, again, surface one of the pieces you wrote throughout this year, and I consume as much as I can about the pandemic without just uh, sort of walking off into the desert. But um, <laughs> you, you wrote one of these pieces where it's one of these ones where I read it and I was like, oh God, like, it just really stopped me. And it was your op-ed in February about the governor of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a piece called Welcome to Iowa, a state that just doesn't care if you live or die. It was again, it was in the post. I just want to read one sentence from this because it really stopped me short. So sort of this phase of like, Will we reopen and how at a state by state level? And you wrote initially Iowa's biggest outbreaks were at food processing plants, which employ a large amount of immigrant labor. At first, the plants shut down. Farmers with no market for their hogs euthanized them. Then a moral calculus was made pork before people and plants opened up. Uh, you know, you're like channeling Upton Sinclair here in a, in a pandemic mode. I mean, it's amazing to me the way you laid out that whole syllogism around decision-making at the level of Iowa. And then, as you said earlier, it's like, now you're in the Thunderdome. It's like masks off and everything is is fine. Let me start with this question. What does the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, think she's doing with these policies? Is this her path to the White House in her mind? Or like, I just help me understand what governors like Kim Reynolds think they're accomplishing here. You know, it's, it's the economy, right? It's money. And, um, and I know that a lot of the successes that are being touted at these um, press conferences that um, she still has is, um, you know, is that like, oh, Iowa has low unemployment. Well, you know, how many people stopped looking for jobs? How many people died, by the way? Like, I know that's real grim, but 
I think we need to ask that question, um, especially since we have like a huge aging population. You know, how many people moved because they're sick of being treated like garbage um, at a policy level? And, you know, so so th but that those are the successes that are being touted. Right. Like we we kept going. We never stopped. We, you know, in the face of a pandemic, we. <laughs> We looked it in the face and we licked it in the face. You know, it's like, uh, I don't think that's a success. You know, we are sitting on a huge, um, Iowa has a huge budget surplus and it's, um, and, 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 and the governor won't release it. I mean, we have Iowans who are starving, you know, um, and, and we're just going to sit on it. I mean, our, I mean, another non-pandemic issue we don't even have clean water like the city of des moines is right there on a river they can't clean their river up enough to use that water mm -hmm. so they have to mm -hmm. go underground for the water like it, our water in this state is at a crisis level we won't do anything about it uh because we just want to say we have money and i think that that's another thing um we should go back to Hostchild, who wrote um, um this wonderful book um strangers in their own land which came out a couple years ago talk about like you know the appearance of success and uh, especially you know in states where like government policies are like giving you cancer through you know bad drinking water or poison groundwater right. but if you have a job and you feel successful in that moment then that assuages some of the bigger systemic issues and um i don't know there you know but then there's also issues of you know of of, of voter suppression and you know and how and who gets to vote and how mm -hmm. so it's hard to i always have a hard time when people go oh well it's just like the red state and that's where all the jerks live and you're like okay but like i don't know we also just passed you know some some laws about who can vote and how that uh are pretty restrictive and it's mm -hmm. and 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 so you know who who gets a say and who doesn't and it's certainly not the workers in the tyson meatpacking plants you know and and then it's also you know pork is big money and i'm not just i'm not just crapping on republicans here i think it goes both ways you know they're uh, and i hate doing that i hate being like both slides because yeah. you know do, doing like a dichotomy is is just it flattens all nuance but you know but as far as politics goes you know pork's big money ag's big money and they and they throw it around and so you know who, who are you gonna appease and uh and i and, and it is money and if you don't see the human suffering because you choose not to because you don't speak spanish or you choose to just forget that you know it's it's uh immigrant labor and those meatpacking plants or like the governor of south dakota then blame the immigrants for living in such close quarters ma'am right stop like on five levels please stop right. with that but um and I'll say I was governor stopped short of saying that, but, you know, pretty much indicated right. that. And so I just, I, um, I, I believe that in a couple of years, once uh, open records requests finally get filled and once lawsuits make their ways to the courts and um, that we're going to realize the rot we were living on. And, um, and I don't like it. And I uh, and I hope nobody else does, but I think it's really easy to forget it if you yourself are doing okay.
Well, you're active in a church community, and you've written about the role of faith and church in, in America and in middle America, particularly in these last few years, the Trump years. And I raise that because most of my family is in Texas. That's where I grew up. And you don't make sense of big events in Texas without making sense of it through discussions that happen in church, around church, and about church. And even shutting down last spring, you know, the conversations I had with my parents were about, well, well, what's going? What's this going to mean for the choir? What's this going to mean mm. for the church choir? That's how the conversation unfolded. I wonder how you've seen that there in Iowa. Um, you know, I also I grew up in Texas, Allen, Texas. Um, but the um, I haven't lived there since I was thirteen, so I guess it doesn't. You count. can go back anytime. If you've <laughs> my, done, yeah, my yeah. parents they told me I can come back anytime I want. They tell me that all the time. <laughs> I'm healthy enough to go back to Texas. Uh, my parents still live there and were affected by the storm, and it's been a nightmare. But they um, oh, sorry about that. Mine too. Yeah. Oh gosh. And they. Um, yeah, I, I will say, I think religion plays a role everywhere, but something I have been thinking a lot about is um, the role that religious institutions played in the spread of COVID, um, especially the ones that pushed so hard to stay open. Um, uh, right after the violent insurrection at the Capitol, I donned mask and uh, and went to a couple churches, you know, the ones that said they were safely opened and, and they were not safely opened. I mean, that's just like, it's such nonsense because it's a bunch of people standing around and maybe they wear masks inside while they walk in. But then the moment the music starts, masks off, everybody's singing in a closed windowless auditorium. I mean, the churches in Texas are the same as churches in Iowa. They're massive cement slash brick buildings with these kind of like, it, you know, windowless auditoriums in the middle. And you're just like, this is, and we're not, and, and you can't, it's hard to talk about because, you know, then you bump into the freedom of religion. I remember um, asking a uh, a city council person about this after going to some of these churches and peeking in and being like, oh, God, uh, and asking him, like, what's what's the enforcement here? He was like, you want to go in and tell a church to put on a mask? He's like, your funeral. And it's true. I mean, California had lawsuits. Everybody's had lawsuits. Um, you know, everybody has had these these church, these religious institutions push so hard for reopening. Um, you know, during the middle of the summer, there was a big outdoor revival in Kansas City so they could pray for the nation's healing. And then the numbers in Kansas City shot through the roof. But like, but but there's no, you know, but it, it's so hard in America to say, you you church you're killing America. And there's also the added there's also the added layer of vaccine disinformation. You know, QAnon, by the way, getting spread through churches. Um, vaccine disinformation getting spread through churches. You know, these are uh, conser closed conservative communities that distrust quote unquote mass media, you know, distrust what's being said through, I mean, literally any Democrat, you know, you could be the most Republican Democrat, high Biden, who is, by the way, one of our most religious presidents of Absolutely. all time. Yeah. And like, and then he could say something they're like, you know, and and, yeah. and this has been happening. And, and you and I both know, because if you grew up in Texas, I mean, you remember Waco, you remember this Ruby Ridge. This isn't new. Like this, this is how you know, I was homeschooled in Texas, too. So that tells you the level of crazy. But, you know, it's always been these like 
closed communities operating as their own, you know, like microcosm. And but but in a pandemic, it's not so closed, you know, in a pandemic, that's how it gets spread. You talk about Dave Ramsey having the big parties. Religion in this past year, religion, churches in America have played a huge role in the mass extinction event. And I don't know how we're ever going to fully uh, grapple with that, you know. Um, but there, you know, I say that. And of course, you know, people are like, not my church and not my church, you know, like the little, mm-hmm. you know, the little liberal rainbow flag flying Iowa Lutheran church I go to has been so strict about, you know, trying to keep people home. And I know that also it's complicated, right? Like, because churches are how people organize churches in Iowa are now doing vaccine outreach to right. communities. So it, it it's not, it's complicated, but there's also some, um, some real problems here with the way we capitulate to religion in America. And I don't know how to solve that one. That's a real tough one. I mean, you've gotten right into the center of the problem here, though, which, um, you know, sort of the nature of some of these communities, the more conservative ones, which might, there might be misinformation spreading, mm-hmm. a general distrust of democratic policy. Um, but at the same time, those might be the very ones that are helping to staff soup kitchens, dealing with job loss in a community. It's not an either or, it's a complicated sort of community within a broader community. Well, and this is why if you completely rip away a social safety net and then rely on religious nonprofits to provide that safety net, you have big problems and people fall through the net. You know, like this is why a social safety net is necessary because you don't want to leave it up to groups who disactively discriminate against LGBTQ people. Like it's, it's banana pants. And stop it. Uh, build up the social safety net. Make it fair for everyone. And, you know, it's great. You know, you, I read stories about like, well, this church offered health insurance to its members. Cool. Who are the members? White people? Great. You know, like, let you. we can't. It, it has to be a bigger conversation. And And you're right. Like, you know, part of the reason I'm still involved in a faith community is because it keeps me active in my community and helping other people keeps me outside of myself, you know, volunteering with meals on wheels and, and those things that I feel very passionate about, but it, but on the other, but at the same side of it, you know, you, you have to realize this is a systemic issue and, you know, no matter how many nice white ladies named Nancy volunteer in a soup kitchen, it's never going to solve the fact that there's the trans women are getting murdered, you know, and, 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 and not getting vaccinated and dying of COVID. It, these are problems and we need to rebuild a social safety net, which goes back to policy solutions. Like, I mean, I don't love the, I mean, again, I was raised in Texas. I don't love the government. <laughs> I know it sounds like I do, but I don't, but like, I mean, come on, let's get some policy solutions to like pull that hole back up and, uh, and then stop and stop being so shocked when people fall through the cracks. I wonder if you might talk a little bit just about faith at, at this time. I mean, beyond sort of how <laughs> churches are put together and the politics that they become magnetic a- around. I mean, this year has been a year in which people have been looking at death 
and looking at suffering. And yeah. I feel like, just like you, I feel like there's been so much news coverage in every angle of the pandemic. Maybe I'm reading the wrong newspapers, but I haven't seen as much around the complexities with religion and also the complexities of, of faith and sense, what we call it in disaster research, is sense making. But for most Americans, that means like, faith and what does disaster mean to their faith? Um, you know, I, I actually feel like uh, we, it, communities of faith, um, white, I should say, especially say white communities of faith um, have been isolated from this. Um, there seems to be a lot of, you know, well, death is death and God is God, but there, there hasn't been, we haven't, we haven't collectively mourned as a nation. Um, I know the Biden administration has, you know, held a memorial service, but, you know, I remember my college chapel having a service after 9-11. There's nothing like that. People haven't been able to gather. We haven't been able to get a sense of the loss. And because of the way it's, the deaths have been politicized. People are quiet about it. You know, people are ashamed of it. Um, uh, people, uh, and so I just, I feel like there's a real hollowness, you know, people just forcing themselves on without stopping and taking stock of everything that we have lost um, as a nation. And I don't know how you make that happen you know in, in again in like in previous disasters and in, in previous times of mass loss there has been a grappling one of my friends who's um who's just an incredible writer colin dickey wrote about the resonance between um the rise of spiritualism post civil war and what what's happening you know what could happen now and i i wonder a lot about that you know that there was you know there were also you know mass revivals uh protestant revivals post civil war too and 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 then there but there was also the spiritualism you know people trying to grapple with the loss of all their sons and brothers uh post civil war so um there has to be something um and i I would hope that uh, faith leaders, and, and I know that sounds incredibly naive, and trust me, I'm not incredibly naive, but um, that there would be some sort of like reckoning with everything we've lost, um, the human life. But again, I have to wonder about that too, because if we think about who dies from COVID, you know, it's 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 marginalized folks. You know, so you're going to get Franklin Graham's church to have a mass service for all the, you know, all the, the immigrants who died at, at meat packing plants. We don't even know because states aren't even releasing that data. So that's that's also another problem is that like mm -hmm. we can't even collectively grasp the loss. Um, I think it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. Um what happens uh but i would it would be nice if if we could if we could somehow mourn as a nation um one of the things i really like about your your writing is that you you you're not naive about the way policy works i mean you really you get down into the details of policy but at the same time 
um, you maintain, I think, and, and you correct me on this, but you maintain some hope or optimism for the commons and in different, in different ways at different scales. And this is what we've been talking about, you know, religion and faith in America. Even as you describe it, I, you know, I, I agree with you. Franklin Graham's not the right person to lead some sort of a post-pandemic American tent revival. But, but local, you know, local churches, local faith leaders, that, that will be a powerful place for that kind of revival to take place, won't it? And if you think about who we are electing, we have an active reverend now as a senator in Georgia. Once again, yeah. Biden is... I thought Obama was one of our most religious presidents of all time. Um, Biden, you know, takes that to a new level. Um, and and so I do I do think there is opportunity there, but I do think faith in America is so political and always has been, by the way. I mean, thank you, Eisenhower and Billy Graham, who politicized you Christianity in America and made it more about nationalism than faith. But um you know that it, it, it will be interesting. It would be it would be nice to see if we could puncture a hole and find a way to mourn. And and I mean that in whatever spiritual sense that that means for most folks, but it, it, but America is still large, no matter how many think pieces the Atlantic writes, America is still a nation of people who largely profess to be of a Christian faith. And so, um, and so it, it would be interesting, but yes, you are right. I do have hope. I don't think I would write if I didn't have hope. Um, I think that this, this is the fight of our lives, you know, and, and it won't end here. It doesn't end when everybody gets vaccinated and has their hot girl summer. Like it, it, it continues and the effects of this are going to be felt for a long, long time. Um, we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna be, we're gonna be, you know, kicking over the stones of the pandemic and seeing all the worms and rot beneath and, um, and that's going to give us a lot to grapple with. All the things that we were able to hide from when we were just in our homes, we won't be able to hide from anymore. And um, and that will be hard. But I also hope that it brings change. And I don't mean that in like a silver lining way because I'm not grateful for a mass extinction event. And I no. never will be. No, not ever. But And no buts. I just am not grateful for it. And um, whatever whatever good we can come make out of this, I hope that's how you create meaning, right? So, mm. oh, that was holy. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's just honest. I mean, I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Liz Lenz today. So we've talked about um, motherhood and and we've talked about God uh, and the pandemic. All, all the life. <laughs> topics. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we do. I mean, uh, COVID calls for sure. Um, disaster every day for at least an hour. But I want to, I, wanna, I sort of want to ask you a bit about what you're thinking about next, because those two books came out in such rapid succession. And you talked about what it's like to have a book come out basically the day a pandemic starts in a country. So you've kind of been kept from doing the normal things an author will do, which is to go out either on the internet or in person in the old days, in uh -huh. person, interact with people, get the ideas out, refine them and then bring them back to your workshop at a quiet moment and start on the next project. And it seems like you haven't had that 
I've never had that. I'm a working okay. single mother. Yeah, <laughs> correction. Thank you for that. That's right. Okay, so uh, another myth to puncture, but let's say in the one to five minutes you yes. have after your kids go to bed and before you collapse, that would be the time when you could take some stock over what you've read, written in the last couple of years. How's that working for you? Um, you know, like I said, I was laid off in October and and that was kind of a huge halt on everything, which in some ways was nice, caused some new problems in other ways. Um, but the things I'm thinking about right now are especially how this is. In, I, I, I see the, the crisis that I'm really interested in is a relational crisis, which is also a systemic crisis in, um, in, in married relationships, especially as they've been kind of like laid bare, especially in this pandemic year. You know, what does it say about our cultural institutions of marriage specifically that still uh, breed inequality? And how do you change that? And how do you, you know, look at a society of women who are screaming out for help? And how do you help them? And how do you see that intersectionally, you know, through the relationships, which, you know, so interesting because of the history of marriage, you know, it used to be economic thing. And now we say it's, now we say it's about love, but it's still economic, but we just don't talk about that. Um, so how do we, you know, how do you how do you get to that? Um, so I'm always interested in and in where 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 our humanity meets a system, which is why religion, which is why pregnant bodies, and so that's that's what I'm thinking about now. You know, how is this going to impact relationships? Are we going to see a huge wave of pandemic divorces? I think we might. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not exactly the a bad thing. I don't um because i also think we need to reevaluate what we describe as success for a relationship but um those are the things i'm thinking about the big discourse out there right now about how millennials uh don't get divorced and and then delay i mean the data points are all over the place yes. people waiting yeah. later to get married but then also <laughs> they don't get divorced. all of that sort they of could all get divorced in the next year we don't know, I know right exactly i'm like I, I think you want to hold these pieces until we see a little bit of like what's it like in the yes in the summer Yes, um, yes. And I, you know, obviously, you know, as I, because I'm a writer, and the best thing about being a writer is talking to people. And I've been talking to women about this. And it is very yeah. fascinating. Yeah, really fascinating to see how it's changed people's attitudes to relationships, and you know, even just like, progressive people, you know, um, and, and what's, what's happening there. I think it could change America is it's, it's um, uh, Firestone, you know, said there's no systemic change unless you feel it in the bedroom. <laughs> so I, uh, I think that that's happening. I wonder how you like, when you start uh, down the road of a topic like this, where are you looking um, to get information. I mean, I don't want you to give up the full like recipe for your success as a writer, but are you starting with like small groups of people and work outward to understand that? Or you work with big oh, data sets and come in? Like, how do you put together? Oh, look at like you. That? Look at you talking to me like a scientist. I go by my feelings. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, no, most I social scientists do too, <laughs> if they're honest. <laughs> Thank God. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not, um, I, I, first, 
how I've always done it is I read as widely and as deeply as possible, which is what I'm doing now. I've been really reading deeply. And um, I mean, for Belabored, I read a lot of, you know, uh, uh, 19th century or 18th, 19th century feminists. And now I'm reading um, very deeply in um, the radical feminists of the 60s and 70s. And, 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 and just trying to see, okay, what is, what's, what is the foundation upon which we have, you know, this current space? So then when I'm finally able to, um, y'all go out, I'll talk to people. I like to build out scenes. So I like to find, okay, what is a, where, who's a person? Where's a moment? Where's this? So I have this foundation of research and then how is that a, happening in a personal life? And then if I can find that moment, and then go talk to that person. Um, that's that's kind of how I work a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I also, you know, will try to. I also always talk about myself and my writing. I just feel like you got to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and so that'll be. It, yeah, it, it will be interesting. I'm actually, you know, as the world opens back up, I'm trying to think about, okay, what does the summer look like for research? You know, where, where do I go? What do I do? And how do you do it in the safest, most possible way? But right now, you know, um, I have great groups, uh, online groups of, of mothers, and, and I have a good social media following. And, um, and so I, those are the ways I kind of have early conversations about things and listen. I also love to read widely. You know, there's a lot of great writers out there who talk about these things. And I love to send them emails and say, you know, what are you doing? You know, kind of like scientists, yeah. like, what's your research? What's your research? You know, yeah. so um, that, that's, that's what I do. I wish it was smarter or more interesting. No, thank you for sharing some of that. I think for aspiring writers, that kind of discussion is really interesting and important for them. We're almost up on time with um, Liz Lenz today on COVID calls. I wanted to, you just talked about social media and this was the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, you used this phrase recently in an article that you published about the, um, the phrase is the tyranny of tweets, which is another one of these things I read by you. I'm like, yep, that, that helps me understand things um, right now. I have huge mixed feelings about social media, as I imagine you do too. You talked about community building through social media, which I think is real. I think people do real research using social media communities. At mm -hmm. the same time, it can be absolutely dispiriting and a mechanism to destroy democracy on any given day of the week. Um, mm -hmm. And spread disinformation and spread disinformation, which I'm sure, you know, any any person working to vaccinate uh, experiences every day. It's got to be a nightmare. So are you going to save Twitter? How can it be done? <laughs> um, you know, I I uh, I've been thinking about this recently just because of something I wrote about about. Twitter disinformation in the age of Trump for a profile that I wrote for the Columbia Journalism Review. And, you know, I've been thinking about the ways that social media both both liberates and, um, you know, and constrains. So, yes, I mean, we do talk a lot about the disinformation, um, the, uh, the, the harassment. I mean, I've, I've gotten bomb threats um, before and I you know, get nasty emails and comments on the regular. Um, but, but also, but there's also the other side in that it is freeing. Um, a friend of mine, the writer Brandon Taylor recently wrote about, you know, how as a, as a young queer kid, um, 
in a conservative state, like being on the internet allowed him to reimagine his whole life, his whole existence. I had a similar situation, you know, I, I was able to see a whole way around, you know, just like scholarly research and answers to questions that I might not have been able to find on my own before. And, and so I do think that like, you know, if you puncture a tire, like the air goes out, but then it also goes flat, but then you get, I, that was a terrible metaphor delete it, delete it. But, um, <laughs> but I, I think there's, you know, there's something, there's something to that, like, you can't, you can't have a space where you are fully allowed to reimagine the world, right, without the imagination running amok. And so how do you fix it? I'm not sure. I think you you teach people to be more media literate. Um, you try to break down those walls of words. I mean, many, many years ago, Milan Kundera wrote about, you know, graphomania and people just like surrounding themselves and their walls of words. And it was great. He did that before the internet because that's exactly what some people do within the internet. But these are not new problems. They're just the same problems happening in different ways. And so I always like try to keep that perspective, you know, that it's an internet age, but it's also just an age, right? And so how do we conduct our way through it in the most ethical way possible that tries to make the world a better place for people? And it's exciting to me that the internet is still a place of community. It is still a place of connection. It has saved my life in this pandemic. Otherwise, you know, like as a single mom living alone, I wouldn't have yeah, right. anybody besides an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old to talk to who are great, great. No, I mean, no, you know, no criticism, but they're not adults. <laughs> well, I'll keep following you on Twitter to see how you sort this out in, in real time. I want to thank my guest, Liz Lenz, and I want to make sure everybody knows that you can um, find her book, Godland, and you should also check out her most recent book, Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. And just to thank you for your time today, Lenz, and all Liz, and all of the um, great writing that you do. And thank I look you. forward to more. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing the work in this pandemic. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 5.30 p.m.